Hey guys, welcome back to Bodies in the Bayou, Season 1, The Texas Killing Fields. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. Now that we have wrapped up Season 1, The Texas Killing Fields, we decided to do this bonus episode to kind of bring you some updates on the cases that we um, brought you over the season. Yeah, and we'll be, um, so with season one, we'll be bringing you bonus episodes with updates as we get them. So always be checking back and looking at season one if you're interested in those updates. We're also gonna highlight probably one or two more cases that are not part of Texas Killing Fields, but are in the same area um, that we've kind of come across and um, are waiting for a little bit more episode, but we'll, we'll bring you those at a later date as kind of a bonus to this season. Right. And uh, I guess with that, we'll get started with a listener question from Karen. Yeah. Um, she says, I have heard a reference being made quite often to it, quote, being safer in the seventies and people didn't think that this could happen end quote. She states, surely people started to realize it was not as, as, as safe as they thought, and they would have been worried for their children. She says, I tend to think there always has and always will be weirdos who enjoy killing out there. You know, and then she does ask us a question personally and what we think, when and how maybe these changes came back or came about to bring awareness to the children. Right. So interestingly enough, um, the, the idea that the seventies were safer or even the seventies and eighties were safer than now, I think is actually a myth. Um, there was, there's actually a higher rate of, um, crimes in the seventies and eighties. Um, it's kind of considered the golden age of serial killers, but you, there's, there was a lot more violence out there. You have a little bit smaller of a population. Um, you don't have some of the violence that maybe we think of today, like not as much of the gun violence and that kind of thing, but the, the violence, the abductions, those types of things were actually happening at a greater rate back in the seventies. But as far as parents becoming aware, actually parents did start to become aware um, from a kid who grew up in the, in the seventies was born in the seventies and grew up in the seventies and the eighties. My parents were always kind of telling us, don't uh, talk to strangers. You know, you get that stranger danger thing that comes out. Um, don't, don't go up to somebody who's offering you a puppy or candy mm -hmm. or anything like that. Um, well, when we were talking about this too, you know, and there wasn't the social media hype mm -hmm. either. Right. So, now say something happens to my kids, I can go directly to the internet, to forums within hours, right? you know, to bring that awareness where people are going to be on high alert, you know, during that time, they didn't have Amber Alert. No, um, comes along, you know, about this time period, I think in the early nineties, mm -hmm. you start to, um, well, actually I think early two thousands is when the Amber Alert mm -hmm. comes out there, but, um, you know, you, and I think you had communal awareness, like in this area, the community was aware of this. And so they were talking about this and, and, you know, trying to figure out what their kids were, but as far as safety went too, there were a lot less, um, things that as far as technology goes that they could use back then. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, you, you know, you've 
can pretty much guarantee you're on camera at some point in time during your day. Sure. And then, you know, they also came, you know, with the in karate uh, facilities and stuff like that, yeah. the, you know, self-defense classes, yeah. which I don't think was happening before. And as then much. with the invention of the cell phone and the ability for children and teens to have that cell phone in some ways, as much as people want to be like, oh, the cell phone's so bad because, you know, we don't need kids having all this cell phone um, time. I get that. And, you know, now we've introduced strangers from across the country to our kids who right. have access through that, through social media and their games and all sorts of things. But at the same time, we've armed children with this, with the ability to let us know where they are at any point in time. You can track phones, you can, they can call, you know, if they suspect anything, they can immediately call you and have a conversation about it. And so that bit of technology has really made kids quite a bit safer too. Mm -hmm. Um, while also introducing that part that makes kids a little bit more in danger. So, you know, it's kind of a catch 22, but I can remember in the eighties going for Halloween trick or treating and having to take all of our candy, to the local hospital to have an x-ray. I know when you told me that, I was like, that'd be cool. I mean, at least once, you know, cause uh, you know, I didn't actually get the privilege of having that fun time, but yeah, definitely. We were looking for puncture wounds and candy. Mm -hmm. But I think at that time, we're talking like when they were putting needles yeah. and, you know, razor blades and that razor kind of blades, stuff, yeah. like, you know, hidden in the candy. So. so that kind of thing was getting through to, you know, parents all over the United States and stuff like that. But some of these cases, you know, and especially some of these smaller, less known cases, maybe weren't getting the attention um, across international the uh, nation. But still to this day, we have that happening. You know, you have kind of an improportion. I mean, when they talk about like the Gabby Popito um, effect and all of that, you, you have a lot of these cases that aren't getting as much attention as they should be getting, Sure. you know? And I think that's where my hope is that especially podcasts and social media and that type of thing are, are trying to fill some of those gaps too. Right. So, and I, I think that kind of came to light when we were at CrimeCon and we sat on that one seminar and we had that father talking about his son right. who went missing at the same time as Gabby. Right. Right. And so, and we didn't hear about his case. Yeah. Unfortunately. So, um, but you, you always hope that, that's changing. I personally believe if that we have to get past that whole idea that somebody has gone missing for their own, they've made that decision on their own to mm -hmm. go missing. Um, because maybe they have, but maybe there's mental illness or something else happening. And I think that being aware of that and until they're contacted and they say, I've gone missing because I've made that decision for my mm -hmm. safety or my family or whatever the case may be, they should be looked at until then. Right. You know, and, and but every... I think also, you know, and if we're going to go back to like Karen's question, talking about the seventies right. and to where we are in 2022. Right. Yeah. So things had to happen during the seventies, eighties, nineties, even two thousands, whatever, to get us to the point where we're at. And unfortunately right. that's just evolution of, mm -hmm awareness right? right and so unfortunately it does happen that way but maybe it's supposed to happen that way mm -hmm. you know? but still today we're still having that myth like you know that 
um, children can go missing because they want to. They're they're a child, so they can't. <laughs> right. Um, you know, a runaway, if, it, if a runaway or child abducted or however the case may be, they're still a child, so they still you know, I still need to be on them. They still need to be put in a safe environment. And I would even go to say like, you know, where we when at 18, where we were at 18 <laughs> to where the kids are now at 18, they're less mature. Right. So they're almost kids until like 20, 21 to me, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't know if that's because I'm a parent of a teenager now, but <laughs> it just seems that way. Even being in yeah. the workforce, it's like you get these young kids and you're like, where's your life? you know experience that you know sometimes yeah. but i think you know we need to consider them to be children up until that point almost well and certainly with the case that you talked about about daniel in arizona going missing you know that he's an adult but at the same time he had no reason to go missing mm -hmm. so police treating him as like oh he just walked away from his life you know that's that's not true and and to to have that thought process and and to not do the investigation like it should be done you know we're still missing something mm -hmm. so you know having people out there on social media and sounding those alarms i think is is helping that situation to say hey listen we we will look for you if law enforcement's not going to look for you we're going to look for you absolutely but even just sitting through daniel's seminar you know with his dad yeah. it there was you know, the one audience member who went up and was like, have you done this? Have you done this? And he didn't even know about that. Right. So like, thank God for these outlets that he's like, wait, I can do this yes. too. Right. So he's, and he's trying to navigate this all on his own. You right. know? So that's unfortunate. Well, I think that answers Karen's question in a long <laughs> way, but, but yes, you know, um, I feel like it's safer nowadays, but there, there are certain aspects that aren't. Um, and again, as we went towards stranger danger and stuff like that, we almost missed a part of that, which is, you know, sometimes these things happen within the home. Sure. So, um, but I think we'll uh, get started on our next episode or our updated episode. All right, so we are going to get started today, and our first update is going to be with the uh, Laura Miller case. Yeah, so we covered the Laura Miller case in episode 14. She went missing at a convenience store near her home in League City in 1984 and was found off of Calder Road in what is considered Calder Field in 1986. Um this is the same field that Heidi Fay uh, was found a few years earlier and at that exact same time that she's found uh, also Audrey Cook, who went unidentified for years, was found. And then later um, in the early 90s, Donna Prudhomme was found in that same area. So Tim Miller is Laura Miller's father, and you have probably heard us talk about him quite often, but um, Tim Miller is the founder of Texas EquiSearch, and he, um, in or he started Texas EquiSearch in order to help families bring home their missing loved ones. Today, at Texas EquiSearch is involved in many cases that we've covered in these episodes and hundreds of cases across the United States. Sure. And actually, I mean, even abroad, um, he's gone abroad and helped in, in many cases that I'm sure people have heard of. Um, but bringing us back home, Tim Miller for many years has believed that a man named Clyde Hendrick was responsible for the death of Heidi Fay, his daughter, Laura Miller, and Audrey Cook. 
we covered Clyde in episode 16, where we discussed the murder of Ellen Beeson and ultimately the con conviction of Clyde Hendricks for manslaughter. Miller has spent years investigating Hendrick, going even as far as purchasing the contents of his house once it had been foreclosed on by the bank. Um, he purchased the contents of the house, boxed it all up, uh, has stored it still to this day um, and goes through it looking for evidence to um, support that uh, Hendrick's Hendrick is is actually indeed a serial killer. Mm -hmm. I mean, to, to put it as bluntly as we can go. So Tim Miller filed a wrongful death suit in 2014. At the time, Clyde Hendrick was um, going to prison for the murder of Ellen Beeson. He has just recently, in the last few months, been released from prison. Um, and so last week, a Galveston County judge granted Miller a default judgment in the case for over $24 million um, for the wrongful death of his daughter, Laura Miller. All right, Gretchen. So, uh, let's explain to our listeners that may not know what a default judgment is. So a default judgment is a judgment where the other party chooses not to be part of the case. So this happens actually more often in civil cases than any other case, but where you hear about it a lot is where say somebody is charged with a case and then they flee the country or they're charged with a case and then they go into hiding or something like that. And so therefore um, the court doesn't have that person there to defend themselves or to present a case. And so they actually put on the case against that person without them being there and they can convict them or find them innocent or whatever the case may be. In this case, it's a civil case. So the civil case was filed in 2014 and it's gone all these years with um, him not, Clyde Hendrick, not being a part of it. Right. And um, finally, you know, with him out of prison, the judge has decided it's time to, to move that forward and issued this uh, judgment. I guess it's kind of similar to that one, uh, like serial rapist, right? Where they did the default judgment, uh, just with the DNA sample. And in that case, I believe it was because with rape cases, there is a statute of limitation. And so they were trying to get it in court to kind of preserve that where they could prosecute mm -hmm. on, you know, those rape charges because he did this over decades. Right. You know? And I think that type of case there is, I mean, that's just a criminal right. example, but mm -hmm. yeah. And that type of case is, is more out of the norm than anything else that we've seen, but you know, kudos to prosecutors mm -hmm. in that case for coming up with some way to keep that case alive so that they can have the possibility of when that person's identified through DNA to actually go, go after them. This case, I think, you know, when you look at this, you know, Hendrick is really destitute. It's not like Miller's going to ever see a penny of this judgment. And it's not like any money whatsoever coming to him would, you know, compensate him for the death of his daughter. You can't compensate somebody for the death of their child. Right. Um, and, but I think more than that this was a legal remedy that miller had that he could use in the hopes of getting hendrick to actually participate in the case he would have been put um deposed by lawyers and asked questions those because he would have been under oath that could have been used if he said something or gave information 
that um, would would either contradict his earlier stories or, you know, anything that would help get there to be a possibility of, of, of going forward with criminal charges. Mm -hmm. You know, that was, that to me is more what he was looking at, at doing here. But eventually you have to say he's not going to participate. And so there's no point of keeping that case open in the docket from um, Miller's perspective. What he basically said is this state's, to Hendrick that I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to stop investigating, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and so, um, when, when you look at this Galveston County actually still has this case open, they are still considering this an open case. They're still considering that this is an active investigation in this case. Um, so I would hope that, you know, someday they, they can have some sort of resolution here. I think this is, you know, this is tough, but in the next um, case that we're going to talk about, you know, the same thing. So many years went by with nothing happening and yet it's a different story for that, those families. Right. You're absolutely right, Gretchen. And I guess, you know, this is going to kind of bring us into our next update on uh william lewis reese where you know justice does get served right? right so um so william lewis reese we talked about him um in a couple of different episodes but he was responsible for the murder of tiffany johnson jessica kane kelly cox and laura kate smithers and the abduction of sandra we covered them in episodes 20 and 21 reese would had been in prison in texas for um many years uh, for the abduction of Sandra and it was DNA that tied him to the Oklahoma case of Tiffany Johnston. He was taken from Texas and sentenced to death for the murder of Tiffany Johnston in 2021 in Oklahoma. Before his conviction, though, um, the Texas Rangers, Texas law enforcement began talking to him, hoping that now that the DNA had um, connected him and pretty much, you know, him being told that there was no chance that he was going to ever see the light of day outside of prison, that maybe he would start talking. And, um, and so they made an offer on the table and the offer on the table was that if he would help them in uh, Kelly Cox, Jessica Kane and Laura Kate Smithers um, cases that they would take the death penalty off the table. Right. Um, so he did. He led them. He led law enforcement to the bodies of Jessica Kane and Kelly Cox. And then he also um, confessed to the killing of Laura Kate Smithers, who he was always a suspect in that case. Um, and then he goes to Oklahoma, he's convicted um, in Oklahoma, and then he's brought back uh, to the Galveston area a couple of months ago um, to face these charges. And then on June 29th, Reese was transported to the Galveston County Courthouse where he pled guilty to the murders of Jessica Kane and Laura Kate Smithers. He was sentenced to life in prison on each case and immediately transferred to Brazoria County Courthouse where he pled guilty to the murder of Kelly Cox and was sentenced to life in prison for that. The life in prison sentence, as we talked about, was previously something that had been negotiated Reese will remain in Texas until Oklahoma requests him to be returned in order to put him to death. 
Reese is already fighting the death sentence in Oklahoma. He's stating that when he confessed um, to the Texas cases in order to avoid the death penalty, he was promised by the Texas Rangers that he would not face death in Oklahoma. What is known for sure is that he's not going to be able to appeal the cases, his sentences in Texas. So he will spend the remainder of his life in prison. Um, And really regardless of whether or not he ever gets put to death, you know, you have to say thank you to the law enforcement who was involved here because Jessica Kane's body and um, Kelly Cox's body, I don't, I personally do not believe would have been discovered without him. Maybe one of them might have possibly been discovered by accident at some point in time. Yeah, but, but I mean, it's you know, also that risk too of like them finding these bodies and then they just get registered as Jane Doe's or whatever else. Right. Too. You know, that's, so yes, we're very grateful for that. Um, you know, and and I, there's all sorts of ways that, that people can feel about the death penalty and we're not gonna get into that. But um, I think that this is, is just a, a pretty successful outcome for these cases, but it was done so quietly. I know, and that's one thing that we were talking about, just how it almost shut him down. Like, you know, how he's usually pretty talkative, right. you know, kind of a smooth talker or whatever. And I mean, it just seemed like it was just so like, like you said, just quiet. I mean, you didn't yeah. get a lot of coverage. And, on and that. maybe that's because they didn't want to continue any notoriety for mm-hmm. Reese. Um, you know, because I think he does feed off of that. I mean, he's quite the arrogant ass. Mm-hmm. And I, I will apologize to our um, people out there for for the language but i mean i don't think i could put it any more clear there about um what type of person he is no, because even when you see him on just those slight video clips and stuff i mean he's always smiling and jovial and like you know like everybody's his friend or something right. you know i mean and so maybe they just like you said didn't want to give him that minute right. you know mm-hmm. he didn't he doesn't deserve it let's be clear but the the thing about um this that i do think maybe there should be more talking about is when you look at the texas killing fields these cases you know especially um jessica kane and laura kate smithers case are so important to this area that that the fact that they've been solved and that they're closed and that's done after so many years it just gives you hope that some of these other cases will see that resolution but then when you tie it to the kelly cox case it again makes you think you have to start looking outside this area to think that whoever was involved in all of these cases was just on this side of the i-45 corridor i it can it can be it, a mistake. yeah it's not reali- mm-hmm. realistic because i mean she's she's way up there in in denton yes she's buried down here in brazoria county but i mean she's quite a ways away and and what we do know about you know is they tend to travel sometimes they're almost like gypsies in that way or nomads however you want to put that but sure you know yeah i totally agree with that and he was traveling between oklahoma and texas and that's a lot of of open area there too and i would you know, there's always that hope that this is this is it for him. But we know he's had other rape cases. We know that there are other um, sexual assaults. I'm, I would tell you that I'm positive that there are other sexual assaults that were probably never reported by this guy. Sure. And um, and I just question whether or not 
there's more out there, mm -hmm. you know, and that this isn't really the last that we're, I think we're you would be hear. wrong not to question that, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, but for now, at least, you know, these families have some answers about what happened to their loved ones. Um, and maybe some healing can happen there. I mean, I think that, you know, for a lot of these families, healing has happened over the years, but, but this is, you know, you know, he's not getting out, you know, he's not going anywhere. So it's, as far as justice goes, I think that's all, I think that's, that's all we can give you, yeah. give anybody. So. All right. With that being said, you know, um, unfortunately we're bringing you an update um, that doesn't have that justice served. Right. And the next one that we're going to bring to you is an update with Kim on Kimberly Winetta Blissett. So Kimberly's cases is one of those cases that when I started out with doing this podcast, I really felt like you had to tell the story because there was really no information out there or, or such little bit of information out there. And, and it was important to us and important, important we felt for the podcast to to bring at least some light to these cases that it just seemed like we're kind of lost yeah we're, we're lost you know um and and so she her case is is one of those and in in doing in doing that and trying to seek information um to cover her case we were actually able to make contact with her daughter Kristen, and um her daughter Kristen um, did an interview with us. Um, and so we wanted to bring you some of the information that she brought mm -hmm. forward. I um, guess like before we get started on this, like one thing I have to say is just with our interview with her and talking with her, she is very strong woman, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, she's trying to look out for the best interest of not only herself, but her mother and her siblings, which right. I thought was very honorable. And I mean, you can feel it in her. You can hear it in her voice when you're talking to her, that this is something that's still with her. Right. You know, even though she was very young, it's affected her whole life. So we covered uh, Kimberly's case in episode 24. She was a young mother found stabbed and nude near the Texas city dike. When her mother was killed, uh, Kristen was only seven years old. After her mother's death, she and her siblings were split up. And some of them were raised by her grandmother while um, her brothers were raised out of state by their father. According to her daughter, Kimberly was stabbed 57 times. When you hear of that, the brutality of that, you, you really start to think, and, and from the beginning, you know, I, I kind of wondered whether or not this case was going to be somebody who knew her, was very intimate with her. Um, just the absolute total brutality of this. Mm -hmm. Um, and she did state that her mom was what, 110 pounds, right? Like she was tiny. She was tiny. Mm -hmm. So, um, but in talking to her, one of the realizations that's come out of that conversation is that all the fathers of, uh, Kimberly's children were checked out by police, were investigated. They were all out of state at the time. They actually had alibis. Um, and, and so, you know, what you do know now is that it wasn't somebody close to her. Mm -hmm. Um, but then some of the other things that kind of, again, you know, when you talk about these cases that have so little information or that are lost, you know, over the years, 
so um kimberly's mother only heard from the police three times in the last 30 years once to tell her that they tell her that her daughter was dead and then about two days later to ask some follow-up questions and then a year later just to say that they were working on the case Kristen even took a criminal justice case in her 20s, and the officer who was presenting the case at a local um, college even presented her mother's case while she was in class. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I get that maybe that couldn't have been avoided, but I think in some ways it probably could have. You knew that that was a local case, um, but but I can't I can't even imagine the pain of sitting there in class and and having that case presented there. And having to look at it objectively because that's what you're in class for. Right. right? I mean. So growing up over the years, there were neighbors and friends who told her things. She was told that her mother was walking home the night, um, home that night from a party at a friend's house. It was only a few blocks away from um, her grandmother's house where she was walking to. Her mother was with two other women. Um, when a white van approached them and the women who seemed to know the, the driver of the van, it's unknown whether or not they knew everybody in the van, but they at least knew the driver of the van, um, got in the van, you know, to get, get a ride. Um, the men in the van, uh, one, there were possibly two or three men in the van. One was white and one was black began talking about how the two women owed the men money and they wanted their money. So the two women then left the van to get the money for these men and her mother was forced to stay in the van. The women never returned and her mother was killed. These women apparently, um, you know, whether, whether they knew what was going to happen or, or just thought, you know, if, if they didn't return, maybe that the driver would allow their mother, her mother to leave. You know, we just really don't know, but she grew up knowing these women. She grew up knowing their children and, um, both of the women had drug problems and have now passed away. But at the same time, you know, them never, trying and and we don't know you know what they told law enforcement or didn't tell law enforcement but what we do know is there's still to this day not a resolution in this case and so um certainly they didn't try hard enough Mm -hmm. so i would have to agree with that um this case brings up the fact that there are still people in this community who know things it is again and i'll put it out there it's time to speak up because, you know, and there's a lot of talk sometimes about like, oh, I can't tell some tell what I know because it's just hearsay or it's just this or that. That's those are legal terms that get used in a courthouse. Mm-hmm. Those aren't terms that get used by an officer or an investigator. So if you know something, even if you know all the people in this case are, are have passed on, it's still important to give the family some resolution mm-hmm. here. Well, sometimes even if it's just hearsay or, you know, speculation or whatever, it could still be a lead. Right. You know, I mean, it could always be a lead. And let me be clear here. The people who are involved in this case were still in the Texas City area. Mm -hmm. So 
I do know that people know things. Yes. You know, and, and I do, do know that it's time, it's time to speak up. Mm-hmm. So, so we're going to give you the Texas city police department, um, criminal investigation divisions phone number, which is 409-643-5720. And I'm going to plea again. If you know something or think that somebody might know something, or you're listening to this podcast and your family was in this area at this time, ask them, come forward and ask them. Mm-hmm. Let's make it a point to get some resolution in this case. And it's never too late. No, it's, it's never too late. It's never too late guys. So, um, and you know, let's put a plea out there that Texas city is, is working diligently on this case too. Mm-hmm. I know I, I know more than anybody that how strapped these systems are. I do know that. I do understand that. But at the same time, now's the time. These these cases, you know, you're you're not gonna get any better than right now. Right. So All right, guys, and I guess with that we're gonna wrap it up. But just remember it's never too late. Know, come forward if you have some information. Um, we will continue to bring updates as we get them. We're going to put out a few bonus episodes um, to this season. Um, but with that, we're excited to begin season two, The Candyman. Yes. So thank you again for joining us. And um, as always, you know, if you have a case you think that maybe we should present or that us presenting can help, uh, you can get a hold of us on our Facebook page. You can PM us, uh, private message us. And uh, I think that's usually the best way to get a hold of us. So Mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you.